Amen. Well, it's great to be here with you this morning. My wife, Candy, sends her regrets. She wishes that she could be here as well, as Justin mentioned. We have a sick toddler at home and also a three-week-old, which from the looks of it uh, right now. But like I said, thank you so much for having me this morning. It's great to be here. Let me say a few words before I have you stand and we read this passage together. I think it's always safe to open with a Tim Keller quote. In uh, just a minute, we're going to be reading from Judges chapter 17, and this is decidedly not one of the most common passages in your Bible. In fact, even if you've been to church your entire life, it is very possible, very likely, that you've actually never heard a sermon preached on this text. And so have a listen to what the late, great Pastor Tim Keller has to say about our passage this morning. I'm quoting directly here. He says, this text is almost never preached on. It's almost never studied. And one of the reasons why nobody knows what to do with this, and so nobody tries to speak about it, is because it is so inexplicably boring. Tim Keller, everyone. That was one of the first things, an invitation this Sunday of all Sundays. There are a couple things that need to be said about this passage before we get into it. Number one, Tim Keller is right. This story's got remarkably flat characters. There is no multidimensional drama. There's no crisis and resolution. It's, if somebody was t just telling you this story, it would be a very forgettable conversation. And it stands in sharp contrast to everything that's been going on in Judges so far. Everything else in Judges has been eminently entertaining. I imagine you just finished the story of Samson last week. There's drama. There's intrigue. Everything has been so interesting and captivating up till this point. So why is this here? Well, there's a shift that's happening here between chapters 16 and 17. If you didn't know, the book of Judges really can be divided into three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 are introductory. Judges, I won't say any more about that. My understanding is you've spent all of 2023 so far on that. So you guys have got it. But from 17 to the end of the book in chapter 2021... 20, Something else is going on. So why is this here? One thing that you'll notice from now to the end of the book is there's no judges here. Every other part of this book is about God's salvation. This is what we look like without salvation. Without God. These last five chapters give us an extended, very depressing account of how low the people sink without salvation. It starts with the collapse of the vertical dimension, the relationship with God. That's where it starts, but that's not where it ends, because it ends with the total decline of the horizontal dimension the relationship with one another. And so without further ado, maybe an alternate title for the sermon really could be A Boring Story with Big Implications. 
that would be entirely appropriate. Because as boring as this story may be, the implications for us and for our lives are not. As we're reading this text, I'd encourage you to consider why was this incident chosen out of this whole period of history? Why is this the snapshot of what the people look like without salvation? And with that perspective, I think we'll actually be primed to have this passage start to come to life. And so with that being said, go ahead and stand with me, and we'll read Judges 17, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. There was the man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. Silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand from my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let's pray to the Lord one more time together. (coughs) Father in heaven, we come to you through Christ. Lord, this is your word. And as we come to you now, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of this text. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get the gist of this story out on the table. It won't take long. You've really only got three people in this story. All of them are fairly shallow and uninteresting. First, 
There's Micah. Micah steals from his mother. He keeps it from her. But then he gives the silver back when he hears her uttering a curse against the robber. That's Micah. Then there's also mom. As one pastor says, first, you've got Micah cheating mom. Then you've got mom cheating God. Mom said she'd dedicate all of the silver, all 1,100 pieces to the Lord. But did you notice it when it came down to it? It was only 200. And of course, put that aside, that's almost besides the fact. The main point here is that what she used those 200 pieces of silver to do is build an idol. What she used those 200 pieces of silver to do is violate God's second commandment. This is in breaking of the clear and uniform witness of God's law. You shall not make a carved image for yourself. And so that's mom. There's Micah cheating mom. And there's mom cheating God. And then lastly, there's this Levite. And now remember, in those days, there were certain ways and certain places in which God's people were to worship. During this time, the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle in Shiloh. God's people were to worship him there. God's priests, which came only from the tribe of Levi, would be found there. You'd see those little Levitical priests wearing a breastplate called an ephod when you were in the sanctuary there. So God's instruction to God's people was crystal clear. But that doesn't matter when remember verse 6, quote, everyone is doing what's right in his own eyes. Micah and his mom wanted their own sanctuary and their own priest and their own ephod. And so they made one. They broke God's law. They created their image to represent God. They set up a sanctuary for him in their home. They ordained one of their sons to be the priest. And they even made him an ephod, the breastplate with the stones on it that the priests would wear. And to them, that's not a bad plan until lo and behold, an actual Levite came traveling through town. And Micah said, oh man, we're just kind of doing fake it till you make it out here. But if we could, but now if we could get an actual Levite to be our priest for our statue of God, that would be something else. He says, I'll pay you. And listen to this. In the last line of the chapter, Micah says, if I do this for God, quote, now I know the Lord. You can imagine, we'll come back to that. Let me give a quick spoiler alert for next week as well. Maybe you think this story is just kind of off to a slow start. Just so you know, it's not really picking up from here. In 20 seconds, the end of the story is these Danites, these Israelites from another territory come through. They tell the Levite, come with us and we'll pay you more. Bring those images worth all that silver. Micah does not like that, but they say, pipe down or we'll hurt you. And he does, and that's pretty much the end of the story. And so that's it. A boring story with big implications. Like Tim Keller said, this is pretty boring. I don't think you would call this first-rate literary narrative. The character development is lacking. 
The resolution of a crisis is poor. And maybe that's actually part of the point. But though this story isn't, well, though this isn't gripping storytelling, this is an insight into what happens apart from God's salvation. This is a snapshot of what happened in Israel when sin ran unchecked for a time. And looking from that angle, there is plenty to be brought to light for us from this story. And so why was this incident chosen out of this whole period of history? Why is this the picture of what the people look like without salvation? There are some big implications. First, number one, apart from salvation, we will reduce God even if we don't reject God. Let me say that again. We will reduce God even if we don't reject him. In a minute, I think we'll see the relevance of this to today. Because what Micah and his mom are doing is not a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. They aren't worshiping other gods. They definitely aren't worshiping no God as an atheism. But what they are doing is they are worshiping a reduced God. This is the problem with a violation of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Micah and his mom are worshiping an image of Yahweh. It's just a, ver a version of Yahweh that you can literally fit into your purse. Whittling down and redefining Yahweh is what's at stake in this second commandment. I'm pulling from a variety of commentators and pastors in this sermon, but to paraphrase another one, how could you possibly ever capture the full range of God's glory in an image? Even if you highlight parts of God's nature that appeal to you, you might conceal other parts that don't. You magnify his strength, for example, but you obscure his compassion. Or you celebrate his grace while ignoring his purity and justice. At the end of the day, it's a belittling of God. And what goes hand in hand with redefining God every time is also a redefining of morality. Just as you redefine God, you also redefine right and wrong according to your preferences. That's exactly what happened with Micah and his mother. They reduced God to be a little manageable God. And with a little manageable God, what does it matter what his prescriptions are for worship? Let's just do our own thing. We'll do what's right in our own eyes. He'll honor our good intentions. I see this dynamic at play in my life and in my ministry all of the time. My background is in college ministry. And so, for example, I may hear things like, I know sexual relationships are reserved for marriage, but what seems right in my situation, in my eyes, is a little different. Or maybe this, I know what God's word says about drunkenness, but what I'm doing seems right, or at least neutral, compared to other people in my own eyes. And on and on. At the end of the day, I've learned over the years so many iterations of this that what it is at the end of the day ultimately is a view of God issue. Even for professing Christians who are regularly involved in church and ministry, 
If God is just a reduced God, a little manageable God who I can fit into my pocket, then at the end of the day, what seems right to me just seems to carry more weight than what God's word actually says. And the picture that this passage is painting is that this is what we're all prone to apart from the saving and sustaining grace of God. Left to our own devices, left to our natural state, we will redefine God and we will redefine what's right and what's wrong. I mentioned some problem areas that I'm familiar with in college ministry. Are there any problem areas that you might be prone to? Maybe I know what God's word says about financial stewardship, but what I'm doing seems pretty good to me. I wrestle with that. I need God's sustaining grace in that. What about you? God's grace is sufficient, but let's not be complacent. You hear quotes like this all of the time, quote, my God would never do this, or I can't believe in a God who would say that. I hear those things far too often, and you probably do too. That's dangerous. Let's be on guard not to redefine God in terms of ourselves. In Psalm, and again, it's not an indictment of atheism. It's not an indictment of outright rejecting God. It's an indictment of reducing him. To be more specific, it's an indictment of redefining him in a certain way. Psalm 50 verse 21 says, You thought that I, God, was one like yourself. Redefining God according to our own preferences is a very dangerous place to be in. And that's the first big implication from this boring story. Left to our natural state, apart from God's saving and sustaining grace, we will reduce him. We will reduce God. And moving along in this story, the second big implication, which is related to it, is this. Apart from salvation, we will seek to control God rather than surrender to God. Let me say that again. We will seek to control God rather than surrender to God. I'm paraphrasing the language of another pastor here, but this, this point is connected to the first one. One of the problems or the telltale signs of sin is thinking that God is like ourselves. And one of the ways that we're prone to do that is by thinking that God can be controlled. We all do it. We're all prone to try to use God rather than submit to him. I served several years as the chaplain for a college football team, and I dealt with this sentiment all of the time. If I go to pregame chapel, then God will bless me and we'll go ahead and win this football game. I dealt with that kind of sentiment all of the time. You may be familiar with, I'm going to church. I'm, I'm going to try to go to church now because I'm going through a hard time. I really need God to bless me. Or, I'm trying to get my life right with God because of X, Y, or Z in my business, or in my family, or in my health. We all know it. We all know those sentiments. And we see Micah as the case in point here at the end of Judges 17. I'll do this for God. Now God has to do something for me. No, he doesn't. We all know this. You thought that God could be bought because you thought that God was like yourself. Psalm 50 verse 21. But you're wrong. 
God doesn't exist for you, Micah, and God doesn't owe you. Quite the opposite. True faith actually says, God, I exist for you, and you don't owe me anything. In fact, I owe you. That's how one Baptist pastor puts it. We don't seek control of God. We surrender to God. But that's not what Micah does here. And that's not what we do apart from God's salvation, apart from his saving grace and his sustaining grace. Here, we see Micah scheming. He sees the Levite and he seizes his opportunity. He says, stay with me and be to me a spiritual father and a priest and I'll give you payment, clothing, living. I'll give you anything that you need. And the Levite probably thinks to himself, I don't think you're supposed to do that, but how much are you paying again? And he agrees. And then verse 13, I'm reading directly. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Micah thinks God can be bought. I do something for you, then you do something for me. Micah thinks God owes him. Highly religious people are prone to operate this way. You probably have examples that pop into your head of people who are sure that God has to answer their prayers, but you can't put a handle on God. And that's all that this is doing. And here's the reason why. This is the reason. Another part of the Psalm 50, 21 problem is that it makes us lose all sense of perspective as well. In other words, when we make God like us, we don't just scale him down by a few orders of degree, we scale him down by orders of magnitude. I came across this illustration in my prep and I found it helpful. You may know this, some of you who are smarter and well-versed with these things than I am, but you may know this. If you took the distance from the earth to the sun, which is 93 million miles, and you reduced it down to the thickness of one sheet of paper, then the diameter of just this galaxy would be a stack of sheets of paper 310 miles high. That's just our galaxy. And then, if you took our galaxy and compared it to all of the galaxies in our cluster, it would be like one grain of sand compared to all of the sand on all of the beaches in the entire state of Florida. That's just our cluster. And then Hebrews chapter 1 says that God takes all of that and even more, and he upholds it. It says he upholds the entire universe just by the word of his power. He has it like a little contact lens on the tip of his finger. And now the illustration goes, do you say to somebody like that, please come into my life to be my personal assistant? Do you say to somebody like that, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours? No, you have lost all perspective. You think God is like you. And so many problems are downstream of this. And ultimately, this is the problem of the book of Judges. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary said that you could refer to the story of Judges as the long and painful account of the canonization of Israel. 
Yes, the people enter into the land and take it, but the land ultimately ends up taking them. Another pastor writes, this is true. What you believe about God and your purpose in life will have a tremendous effect on you and everyone around you. When you change the religion of a people, you change the nation. So this is the snapshot in Judges of what the people look like without salvation and without God. Apart from his grace, first, we will reduce him, even if we don't outright reject him. And then second, we will seek to control him rather than surrender to him. We could keep going. Apart from God's salvation, the weak will be abused rather than protected. You'll see that in future chapters. Whenever the rule of God is cast aside, the rules will always get redefined to benefit the strong and not the weak. That's what happens every time. And here's maybe one more thought for this story today. From this boring story in Judges 17 today. Going back to this boring thing from Tim Keller. Is it possible that that's actually part of the point of this story? Is making boring characters who live boring lives part of the effect of sin? Consider this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, the real mark of hell, think about this for a second. He says, the real mark of hell is a ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon the self. And he goes on to say, we must understand hell as a place where everybody is perpetually concerned about his own advancement, where everybody has a grievance, and where everybody lives by the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. This is coming full circle with the Tim Keller reference, but he says advanced and unrestrained sin actually makes you boring. Because all you're ever worried about is how you are doing, how you look, and how things are affecting you. And so that's part, this is part of why Judges 17 is actually the appropriate case study of human beings without God. It's a boring story with boring characters, and there's nothing more boring than someone telling you way too much about something you have no desire to know. C.S. Lewis calls that incessant autobiography. That's his terminology. All right. So what is the antidote to all of this? The solution. And the problem in this story is right there in verse 6. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. In order to stop reducing God, and then in order to stop using God, and then in order to stop abusing others, the people needed a savior. They needed something better than these judges. They needed a king. But then even the king's coming, even the best one, King David, he still needed a savior. And all of that brings us back to this idea of the little carved image. Why did God say, do not make for yourself a carved image? Why is what Micah and his mom did so wrong? 
think about it. Even if Micah and his mom had gone to Shiloh to worship properly at the tabernacle with the Levitical priests wearing the ephod and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and all of that, even when they got there, there would be no physical representation of God there. And why not? We're all physical creatures. We can all sympathize with the impulse for something to physically see, touch, taste, smell, or hear. But God makes it absolutely clear across the testimony of his word. You are not to make for yourself a carved image. And so where does that leave us? Is that it? Do we just have to settle for an invisible abstract God? And God says no. It's not that there will never be one, and it's not that I will never supply one, but it's that you never try to supply one. Because any image that you try to make of me will only make me smaller. But listen, in Colossians 1.15, we read God saying something amazing. We read God saying, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. We read God saying, I am insisting, do not make for yourself a carved image. But that's not to say that I won't supply one for you. Jesus Christ will be the true image, the living image that you can grab onto, that you can taste, touch, see, smell, and hear. The Lord Jesus Christ will be an image of me that you can finally get a hold of and relate to. And he will make me bigger than you could ever imagine, not smaller. Because as big as I am, stacks of paper 310 miles high are like a tiny contact on my finger. Jesus Christ will show you that I will still come and I will still die for you. In your place, for your sin. No image you ever carve or ever even conceive of would show my glory to the world in such a way. But in Jesus, you will know my greatness. And you will know it is a greatness that doesn't crush you with expectation. It is a greatness that frees you through expiation. And now when sinners who need saving, like you and me, encounter a God who is mighty to save like that, now there is no more, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. There is only, you have died for me. I would gladly live for you. Now, there is no, all right, God, come fit in my pocket. There is only, please, God, fit me in anywhere. I will follow you forever. Now, there is no, let me use you. There is only, how could you use me, Lord, for your glory? As one pastor closes his sermon, God can't be bought, but we can Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are rich in grace. 
We pray now that for all of us who are in Christ, that you would sustain us by your grace. We pray that you would keep us from reducing you, keep us from trying to use you, keep us from trying to abuse others. Help us to live in victory, Lord, over sin, rather than as victims to it, for the sake of your name. And Lord, we also pray now that for any of us today who are not in Christ, God, would you save souls by that exact same grace? Your grace is sufficient. We praise you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.